You know, one of the guys in our Thursday morning uh, Bible study mentioned something really intriguing that Albert Einstein wrote in 1909. That for those of us who grew up in a left brain dominant knowledge equals understanding world, which is all of us, something that's a little hard to immediately wrap our brains around. Einstein wrote, imagination is more important than knowledge. For knowledge is limited to all we know, while imagination embraces all there will ever be to understand. Maybe 20 years ago now, I first read Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy, and I've read it several more times since. The middle part of that book is dedicated to Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And by the way, we're going to be looking at those Beatitudes in Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12 today. It's what we know today as the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to be reading from that sermon up until Lent, at which time we're going to begin a series called Gentle and Lowly, the heart of Jesus for sinners and sufferers. <laughs> and the middle part of that book, actually the whole book, has enlarged more than anything else. Not what I know about what Jesus said. It's easy to read those words as kind of a didactic that we should be familiar with. But my imagination surrounding it, because, and because of that understanding, my understanding of what he was offering to everyone within earshot of him the day that he preached this sermon. And to us, over two millennia later. Because this sermon is not a didactic set of new rules for living. If you've ever thought that, I want to disabuse you of that. Nor is it a long list of aspirational but unachievable attitudes and behaviors. No, more than anything, this sermon, the entire thing is an invitation, an offering of entering into the eternal kind of life within the kingdom of the heavens, not sometime later, but now, today. At the beginning of Divine Conspiracy, Willard quotes Malcolm Muggeridge from his book, Jesus, The Man Who Lives. He wrote, Jesus' good news was that the kingdom of God had come and that he, Jesus, was its herald and expounder to men. More than that, more than that, in a mysterious way, he is the kingdom. And if it's true that in some way, some mysterious way that Jesus is the kingdom, the good news about its availability to us now is good news only if we share his view of the world that we live in. And to his eyes, this is a world in which every part is within the range of God's direct knowledge and sovereign control. Though obviously, he allows some of it for his own good reasons to be other than it ought to be for a time. 
It's a world that, despite its obvious problems, is inconceivably beautiful and good because God is always in it. Nowhere is this idea more consistently communicated, though mostly obscured to modern and postmodern minds, than in a phrase used in Matthew's gospel to talk about the kingdom. And a difference in terminology might seem insignificant at first. Emily could probably tell you words matter a lot. It might seem insignificant at first, but in fact reaches deeply into the heart of Jesus' message, both about the world we live in and the imminence or nearness of his kingdom. The phrase kingdom of the heavens, plural, occurs 32 times in Matthew and nowhere else in the New Testament. English translations don't really know what to do with it because our understanding of heaven is singular and somewhere out there. So it's almost always translated as kingdom of heaven. But this wasn't the case for Matthew, the, the people that Matthew was originally writing to, the Jewish people. Their concept of heaven, or rather heavens, was different. To their mind, there were three heavens, and you can find these talked about all throughout the Old Testament. One is from the soles of your feet to the top of the sky. That's the first heaven. The second one is space, the sun, moon, and stars, what the Bible, the uh, uh, King James Version refers to as the firmament. The third is beyond space. It's it's the throne room of God. And, and we know from 2 Corinthians 12, 2, Paul says, I knew a man who in Christ ascended to the third heaven, though whether it was in his body or in his spirit, I do not know. Now, he wasn't fooling anyone. He was talking about himself, whom I bet he knew pretty well. But he ascended to the third heaven. He's describing that, the throne room of God. And it's God's immediate and pervasive presence that's precisely, which is a lot of P's, precisely what the phrase, the heavens, conveys. This is why in the gospel, in the gospels, all all of them, by far the one message Jesus consistently preached was repent and believe for the kingdom of hev the heavens is, what, do you know it? At hand. It's in this space right here. It's not out there. It's not sometime other. It's now and here. Immediately preceding today's gospel, what's commonly called the Beatitudes, which we read today, Jesus has been proclaiming exactly that message of the at-handness of the kingdom and physically demonstrating it by meeting the immediate and desperate needs of the people around him. Matthew says that because of this, sick people were coming to him from as far away as Syria to be healed, and whatever their illness or pain, if they were possessed by demons or were mentally ill or paralyzed or epileptic or had broken bones, he healed them. 
Enormous crowds had begun following him wherever he went. And having met their immediate needs there, he desired then to teach them. And so he moved to a high spot where they could see and hear him more clearly. Again, it's critical that we understand that he doesn't move up onto the mountain to give some kind of esoteric discourse of sublime irrelevance to the crying need of those people around him. Rather, in the midst of a mass of raw, hurting humanity, and with them hanging on every word, Jesus teaches everyone within earshot about the available, availability and immediacy of the kingdom of the heavens to everyone. If you want to enlarge your imagination about this yourself and don't want to spend a month reading The Divine Conspiracy because it's a dense book, watch The Chosen. It's on Netflix, the first two seasons. It is mind-bending. That's all I'm going to say about it. I agree that um, Christian is a uh, really good noun, but a pretty poor adjective. So I don't watch much Christian television or Christian movies or things like that. That's not what this is. Anyway, there's my plug. I wish they were sponsoring me. But I can't help but agree with Dallas Willard and, and now because of this series have a mental image of it that Jesus must have used show and tell all the time to clarify the extent to which the, his kingdom was at hand because right there standing and sitting in front of him were the very ones who had just received from the heavens through him by his hand the context makes this clear, and Jesus almost always, check it out, he almost always taught from his immediate surroundings. They're at the temple. Here's a teaching about the temple. He could just smile and point to a person in the crowd. There were hundreds, if not thousands of them, who was now blessed because the kingdom of the heavens had just literally reached out and touched them with his own hands. And so he began, blessed are the, I'm gonna say blessed. Blessed is a kind of a liturgical way of saying blessed, but it's a little awkward in here. Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt, deprived and deficient, the spiritual beggars, those without a scrap of religion. Blessed are they when the kingdom of the heavens comes upon them. Or more commonly, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. They're blessed as a result of the kingdom of God being available to them in the midst of their spiritual poverty. The words poor in spirit don't really convey today the sense of spiritual destitution they originally carried. Amazingly, we've made them into some kind of weird, commendable condition. 
I have no doubt that Jesus had dozens of examples of this from the kind of spiritual poverty, of this kind of spiritual poverty in the crowd around him. This would, in fact, accurately describe most of the 12 disciples before he met them. No, before they met him. So standing around Jesus as he speaks are lots of people with absolutely no spiritual qualifications. You'd never call on them when spiritual need, something spiritual needs to be done. There's not a hint that the breath of God might move through their lives. They don't, quote unquote, know their Bible. They'd be the first to tell you that they can't make a sense of religion and they'd be the last to say that they have any claim on God. And the pages of the Gospels are cluttered with them. And you and I encounter them every day. And yet, and yet, the rule of the heavens comes into their lives through their contact with Jesus. And then they too are blessed, healed of body, mind, and spirit. It's important that we understand that what Jesus didn't say here. He did not say, blessed are the poor in spirit because they're poor in spirit. It makes people worthy of the kingdom. And we miss a much more profound meaning of his teaching about the availability of the kingdom by replacing spiritual impoverishment in no way good with some supposedly laudable attitude that somehow qualifies us for the kingdom. You are not qualified for anything, nor am I. Apart from unmerited grace, we pray every week so we don't ever forget we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under the table. Those poor in spirit are called blessed by Jesus, not because they're in some kind of admirable condition, but because precisely in spite of and in the midst of their deplorable condition, the kingdom of the heavens has moved redemptively upon them simply by knowing Jesus. The Beatitudes are not how-to teachings on being blessed. They're not instructions to do anything they don't point to conditions that are especially pleasing to God or good for human beings. Grammatically, they aren't imperatives, something that we're commanded to do. No, one, no one is actually being told that they're better off for being poor in spirit, for mourning, for being persecuted, or that the conditions Jesus lists are pathways somehow to well-being. It's not what he's saying. They're explanations and illustrations drawn from the people right there with Jesus of the present availability of the kingdom to everyone through a personal relationship with him because as Muggeridge wrote in some mysterious way, he is the kingdom. They single out cases that provide proof that in him the rule of God truly is available in life circumstances that are beyond any sense of human hope. They can't possibly be good news if they're read as a set of how-tos for achieving blessedness. 
They wouldn't serve to throw open the door of the kingdom at all. Rather, they'd impose a new kind of legalism, a new way of closing the door, as well as some satisfying new tools for engineering self-righteousness. So what does Jesus say to us in the Beatitudes, and how are we supposed to live in response to them? Firstly, they serve to clarify Jesus' fundamental message, the free availability of God's rule and righteousness to all of humanity through Jesus. They do this simply by taking those who, from a human point of view, are regarded as most hopeless, most beyond all possibility of God's blessing or even interest, and exhibiting them as enjoying God's touch and abundance from the heavens. This fact of God's care and provision shows that no human condition, no human condition excludes blessedness. That God may come to any person with his care and deliverance. God helps those who cannot help themselves to refute Ben Franklin's aphorism. By the way, somewhere north of half of American Christians believe that God helps those who help themselves is in the Bible. It's not. The religious system of Jesus' day left the multitudes out, but Jesus welcomed them into, all of them into his kingdom. Anyone who was called could come as well as any other, and they still can. That is the beauty of the Beatitudes. So we've already considered the spiritually bankrupt or deprived. What about those who mourn? Luke refers to them as the weeping ones. Men and women whose mates have deserted or betrayed them, for example, or a parent in gut-wrenching grief and depression over the death of a little daughter. People who've lost their careers or businesses or life savings because of an economic downturn or downsizing or, or right-sizing. <laughs> It's the stupidest term I've ever heard. Or looting or identity theft. There are so many ways to have your heart broken. But as they see the kingdom in Jesus, enter it and learn to live in it. They find comfort in their tears, turn to laughter. Then there are the meek, the shy ones, the intimidated, the mild, the unassertive, those with no earthly power. When others step forward to speak up, they shrink back. They don't assert their legitimate claims unless driven into a corner, and then usually with ineffectual rage. But as the kingdom of the heavens enfolds them, the whole earth is their father's and theirs as they need it. The Lord is their shepherd. They shall not be in want. Then there are those who burn with desire for things to be made right, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It may be that the wrong, that it may be that the wrong is in themselves. They've failed so badly that they cringe before their own sin and inwardly scream to be made pure. Or maybe they've been severely wronged. 
suffered some genuine terrible injustice and they're consumed with longing to see the injury repaired. Yet, the kingdom of the heavens has an alchemy that can transform even the past and make the terrible, irretrievable losses that human beings experience seem insignificant in the greatness of God. He restores their soul and fills them with the goodness of rightness. The merciful are here too. The cynical will say, woe to the merciful, for they shall be taken advantage of. And outside heaven's rule, there's probably nothing truer. The merciful are always despised by those who know how to take care of business. Yet, outside the human order, in the excess of the goodness of the heavens... They themselves find a profusion of mercy to meet their needs. And then there are the pure in heart, the ones for whom nothing is quite good enough, not even themselves. They are the unredeemed perfectionists, and you know who you are. They're a pain to everyone, but probably mostly themselves. In the church, they find errors in your doctrine, your practice, and probably your heart and attitude. They're the ones who wanted Jesus to wash his hands even though they weren't dirty and called him a glutton and a drunkard. And they may be even harder on themselves. They can tell you what's wrong with everything and they are miserable. And yet, the kingdom is open even to them and there at last they'll find something that satisfies their pure heart. They will see God. And when they do, they'll find what they've been looking for, someone who's truly good enough. Peacemakers are here too. They make the list because outside the kingdom, they're called everything but a child of God because they're always in the middle. Ask a policeman who's been called to handle a domestic dispute. Some of you know that uh, a couple of times a year, I, um, I have a two-day or three-day teaching uh, responsibility at the Anne Arundel County Police Department uh, Police Academy. And uh, I teach with a good friend, uh, communications and leadership, and um, he actually does most of the teaching. I just sit there like a dummy most of the time. Um, and this came up because our last, our last class was with frontline supervisors, those who had been newly promoted to sergeant. And um, this came up in the conversation about domestic disputes and that literally everyone is an enemy because everyone's in enemy mode when you step into that. They say it's the most dangerous situation that they can go into. Neither side trusts you because they know if you're looking at both sides, you can't possibly be on their side. <laughs> Ever gotten inside of a family squabble where you're trying to get each side to see the other side? But under God's rule, there's recognition that in bringing good to people, you're doing, who are, who are both in the wrong, as both sides usually are in some sense, you show the divine family resemblance because God himself is the kind, is kind 
to the ungrateful and the wicked, and the peacemaker deals precisely with the ungrateful and the wicked, as anyone who's tried it knows. Then there are those who are attacked because of their unyielding stand for what's right, those persecuted for righteousness' sake. These often not only suffer momentary harassment, but see their lives turned or ruined or killed simply for refusing to be compliant or complicit with the wrong that's going on. Yet these two can be possessed by the kingdom of the heavens, and when they are, that's enough to allow them to enjoy a blessed life. They experience an unshakable security in which they cannot be harmed. Finally, there are those who are insulted, persecuted, and lied about because they've gone off their rocker by taking up with Jesus and submitting to his reign. That's certainly how his disciples were viewed at the time and how millions of lowercase o orthodox Christian in our own culture and even by some in the church are increasingly and publicly seen today. And yet, Jesus says, take joy when this happens from the knowledge that even now you have a great and imperishable reward in the heavens. You stand as saints before God the Father and his eternal family whose companionship and love and resources are now and forever your inheritance. Even those who are moral disasters will be received by God as they come to rely on Jesus, count on him and make him their companion in his kingdom. I believe that what Jesus meant in the Beatitudes is simply this. The blessedness of the kingdom of the heavens is readily and immediately available to everyone. Anyone can be counted among the saints. And the good news is, though it will be glory, you don't have to wait till you're dead. Jesus offers to us right now blessedness, the blessedness of his present kingdom, regardless of our circumstances. That is the heart of Jesus in the Beatitudes. And it can be experienced only through a transforming personal relationship with him. Because in some mysterious way, he is the kingdom. Listen, blessed are you sinners and sufferers because yours is the kingdom of the heavens. Imagine that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.